From The Daily Oz, I'm Billy Fitzsimons and you're listening to No Silly Questions. Today's episode is a little different. I've got TDA journalist Tom Crowley with me, who's usually the one answering the questions for us. But today, Tom, you're asking them. That's right, Billy. I'm asking questions, hopefully not silly ones, of the Greens leader, Adam Bant. Um, For anyone who follows the TDA page, you might have seen that we sat down with Adam Bant last week. The full interview is available on YouTube. There are clips on our Instagram page. But we thought that our No Silly Questions audience would like to hear, I guess, a bit of a highlights package of my chat talking about the Greens policies and their plans for the election. It was such an interesting chat. I have listened to the full thing. What did you take away from it, Tom? I think the main thing that I took away from it, Billy, was hearing him talk about about how the Greens are going to navigate their role as a minor party and, and if they end up in the balance of power. It's it's a tricky job, um, a very important job and something that we've talked about a bit on No Silly Questions before. So very interesting to, to hear him talk about how he'll approach that. And I think this sort of longer form sit-down chat, it, it's a really good opportunity and a really good way to hear the leaders talk about their plans. I know we've got similar conversations coming up. You'll be chatting to Labor leader Anthony Albanese soon. We're hoping to speak to Scott Morrison. We've certainly reached out to him. I think it's a a format that lets you go a little bit deeper and and ask some of those burning questions. So I really enjoyed the chat um, and I hope that you enjoy listening to it. Well, let's get stuck into it. Here's TDA's chat with Adam Bant. Adam Bant, thank you very much for for talking to TDA. Um, We're going to get into lots of detail on your policies in a moment, but first, can I ask you to give us a 60 second pitch to young voters and I'm going to hold you to time on that. Yeah, sure. This election, we've got to change the government. Um, The Greens will kick the Liberals out We'll get into balance of power and we'll push the next government to go further and faster on the climate crisis, which starts with not opening up any more coal and gas mines, but we'll also tackle cost of living by getting dental and mental health into Medicare, wiping student debt and building more affordable homes. And we can do all of those things if we make the billionaires, big corporations pay their fair share of tax. Let's come to that big issue of climate change. So the Greens are calling to get out of fossil fuels by 2030 and net zero by 2035. Uh, TDA spoke to Labor's Chris Bowen, who said, um, you know, he didn't necessarily have a problem with the ambition of that, but that you don't have a plan to get there. What is your plan? We've launched our plan uh, this week, powering past coal and gas. It's on our website, greens.org.au, and we've had it costed by the Parliamentary Budget Office. And it's a plan that's based out of based on getting out of coal and gas in a staged way over the next 10 years so that we can support the workers and communities in those areas, but also grow new export industries to come online. Um, It involves building effectively the equivalent of our coal-fired power station fleet, but of renewables across the country over the next 10 years, supporting workers in the areas where there's going to be the transition by giving subsidies to new businesses and employers to come in and grow jobs and industries there, and also helping grow new export industries, like in things like green steel and green hydrogen. And we fund it by stopping giving handouts to the coal and gas corporations and by making them pay their fair share of tax. And when you do that, our plan, our 10-year plan, um, you create over 800,000 jobs and the budget actually ends up better off by about $50 billion, $52 billion. Right. So, I mean, when, when you talk about the, the transition in that way, you know, it sort of sounds neat phasing out of one and phasing into the other. But of course, I mean, there are hard choices involved in this. But we're talking about a really significant sort of transition for Australia and a transformation of the entire Australian economy. In that transition phase, there's obviously going to be pain for particular groups of people, uh, people who have jobs in those industries, even if, even if you say that transition is eventually going to grow those jobs 
there is some pain. Is that a, something you think the Australian people are ready for? Because yes and no, like it's a, it's a big transition, but we've already got a lot of people who don't work in those industries, right? Australia has a big, a lot of people employed in education, in the care sector, in the health sector, in finance. Like we've, if you actually look at the Australian workforce and the Australian economy at the moment, we've got a lot of people working outside of those sectors. Um, in terms of the transition, like I've been spending a bit of time in those coal regions, going to the Hunter Valley, um, going to Gladstone, going to, going to Townsville, saying, look, here's the change that we need to make. Here's our plan to do it. Let's have a conversation about it. And what I'm finding is people are up for that conversation because the flip side, right, if we don't have a plan, um, well, we know we need to get out of coal and gas. Like it just, it's a climate imperative. That's the science. If we don't have a plan, then what happens is these communities... Like just you just wait until a corporation makes a decision that they're not going to operate their power plant anymore and bang, they make that announcement and then the community's left in the lurch and there's no transition plan to look after. And that's what's happened with the Araring power station here in New South Wales. They brought it forward. It's what happened with Hazelwood in Victoria. So um, when you say, look, this change is coming and it's got to come because it's just like coal and gas are the biggest causes of the climate crisis, Let's have a plan to do it so that you're not left in the lurch. People are up for that conversation. So, yeah, they are up for it. But, I mean, if you say that people are up for that conversation in, in those sort of parts of the country, why are they voting for, for the major parties and not for the Greens? Well, the clear, the other clear message, I remember talking to one um, co-worker in, uh, in one of the towns in the Hunter Valley who said it's the worst-kept secret here that coal has a use-by date. But we have those conversations quietly because no government or politician is prepared to come and have an honest conversation with us. They're not leading the debate. And that just creates more anxiety and uncertainty. And I think you look at other countries like Germany where they said, right, they wanted to get out of coal for, and they had a 10-year plan to do it. And it was led by government and the unions and business all working together. Once you surface it and put the idea on the table, people will be part of the, the transition. But there's no leadership is part of the answer to that question. There's no leadership. In fact, you've got the opposite. You've got Liberal, Labor, um, One Nation, all of them going into these towns saying, we can keep going with coal out past 2050 and still meet our climate targets. That is a straight out lie, right? And so when your political leaders are going in saying things that are just basically wrong, it's no wonder that there's anxiety and uncertainty in the community. So we need leadership, and that's part of the reason I think you're still continuing to see those results. Right, um, let's move on to talk about housing. So the Greens uh, have a plan to build one million houses. Where are they going to be? Where the community wants them. Um, near places where people uh, want to live and work, and they should be good houses. Our plan is based on an assessment that the housing market is cooked. Like, it is just completely cooked at the moment. And, uh, you know, when this government came to power, the average mortgage was about $340,000, $350,000. The average mortgage is now $600,000. House prices went up 25% in the last 18 months of the pandemic. Uh, like, it is getting out of control. Rents, like, no one's talking about renters. It's getting out of control. Part of the reason for that is that there are tax handouts that fuel property prices, which none of the others want to touch. We think what we need to do is provide a new pathway in for people who are locked out of the housing market to rent or to buy. So our plan is to build a million homes, like you referred to, over the next 20 years. Many of those, some of those will be units, some will be freestanding homes. Governments and state governments own a lot of land, including in the inner city, including near places where people want to work. 
let's use that land instead of selling it off to developers to build these homes. Um, moving on to, to First Nations policy into the Uluru Statement from the Heart. Now, the Uluru Statement from the Heart five years ago was made in consultation by, by 250 First Nations leaders and it had an order, uh, a constitutional voice to Parliament first, followed by a treaty and followed by a truth-telling process. Now, the Greens policy changes the order and starts with the truth-telling process. Why have you diverted from what the First Nations leaders said they wanted? Well, the Statement from the Heart is a really critical statement and we were the first political party to endorse it and I'd encourage, not, not everyone, I'd encourage everyone to have a read of it because it's like it's a short but powerful statement um, it's really worth having a read of there are a lot of people who signed up to that statement and were part of it who place a lot of weight in fact equal weight on all those elements we want to see all those elements progress right truth treaty and voice and um, our concern is we want to see if we're going to have a referendum on voice for example which means a voice to parliament we want it to succeed, right? We really want it to succeed. If it can succeed in the next parliament, then terrific. Um, what we, uh, we with our First Nations network, with a, with a party with the highest representation of First Nations people in the parliament, like two out of 10 of our members are First Nations women, and we've got a really strong First Nations network, and the message they've said to us very clearly is don't forget about those other elements of it, about telling the truth, and also striking a treaty with our First Nations owners. And we've got to see progress on all of those things. So all we're saying is, and it's worth having a close read of the statement itself, because um, certainly from our First Nations network, they're saying all of those elements are important. And our party's saying, let's see progress on telling the truth about the history of violence and dispossession in this country and on treaty and on voice. And in Victoria, for example, uh, that begun that process towards telling the truth and the, the truth and treaty progress, and it's going well. And it helps um, broaden the case and bring the population along to ensure a vote is successful. The last thing we want to see is an unsuccessful referendum because that could push back change for a while. Um, another big issue in this election is wages growth and the Greens have a policy to increase minimum wage and also to focus on, I suppose, public sector wages in a number of ways. But what about wages across the economy and particularly in the private sector? What's your plan to get wages growing across the board in Australia? Yeah, well, lifting wages in the public sector actually helps lift wages in the private sector. And that's not just the Greens saying that, it's the Reserve Bank Governor saying that. Um, and the Reserve Bank Governor has actually been really clear that part of the reason that wages in the private sector haven't grown is because the public sector has been held back by the government. But one of the, one of the other things that we've got to do to ensure that wages are lifted, yes, as you said, we want to put a new floor under the minimum wage, so it's 60% of the median wage. That's what they do in the UK. We think we should do it here as well, and that helps lift wages from the bottom up. Um, we'd also like to see when the Fair Work Commission um, lifts the award wages for those workers in those sectors where a lot of women work, so in some of the education sectors, care sectors, so on, lift them higher than inflation so they get a guaranteed wage rise. So they're things that we would do. But we've also got to make it easier for people to organise and fight for their rights at work. And one of the reasons that wages have been, so, have been growing so slowly, or in fact going backwards, is that it's pretty hard to organise and fight for your, for your rights for a wage increase together. So those things, changing it to make it easier to organise, lifting the minimum rate, um, putting those 
feminised industries, like making sure that we close the gender pay gap by lifting them a bit faster. Uh, and also, I guess the last thing I would say is lifting the level of income support, so job seeker and like to above the poverty line so that no one's living in poverty, um, all of those things that help lift wages. Right, but I mean, I suppose, you know, to, to a business that feels like they're not in a position, they don't have the money to raise wages, looking at your policy platform as a whole and seeing kind of more taxes for, for a lot of businesses, um, what would you say to, to someone from the business community who said, well, we don't have room to increase wages and this is going to make it even harder? Well, I guess so in terms of the tax, I'd say unless you're a billionaire or you're in charge of a big uh, corporation that's got over $100 million in turnover that's making super profits, we're not talking about those people, right? Our policy is about saying billionaires pay more tax and those big corporations that are making super profits but sending their profits offshore, um, they're the ones that we're talking about putting taxes on. So I think that's the first thing to be clear. We're just saying close the loopholes for the, for the upper top end of town. We're not talking about small businesses. Secondly, uh, small businesses want people to come in to their stores and buy things. And to do that, people need disposable income. And that happens through lifting wages, right? And the more, and especially if you're talking about not cutting taxes for the billionaires, but you're talking about lifting wages from the bottom up, people who are, who've got lower incomes don't go off and spend all that money on share portfolios, right? Or their fifth investment property. They spend it in the economy. They come back to businesses and reinvest it. And so the more you lift wages from the bottom up, the more money businesses are going to have because the more money people will have to spend. Um, moving on to, to dental care, which is another one of the big um, policies in your platform um, to give sort of universal access to dental care through Medicare. Why do you think that's not the case already and why isn't that something that other parties are proposing? Yeah, it's a good question. I, I don't, like, there's, um, dental should be part of Medicare. Your mouth is part of your body. You should be able to go to your dentist and use your Medicare card to, to do it. Uh, the, um, I don't know the history of why dental wasn't included in the first place, but it's just an anomaly, right? And we should fix it. And especially because at the moment, people are putting off going to the dentist because they can't afford it. And the problem is, the problem just gets worse, right? And you can potentially end up in hospital from things that could have been prevented. Uh, to the extent that it's a question of money, we think it's eminently affordable to do it. It'd cost less for the government to put dental into Medicare than what people are currently spending at the dentist at the moment. Um, households are spending on average $950 a year on dental care. Our plan to get dental into Medicare works out at about $750 per household equivalent with the government stepping in and doing it. Um, we'd make Clive Palmer pay for it, you know, a billionaire's tax, um, uh, winding back the handouts to people like Clive Palmer so that people could fix their teeth is, is a pretty good deal. Right, one final question. At the last election, about 37% of people between the ages of 18 and 24 voted Greens, but you didn't get 37% of the total population. Your support among older people is a lot lower. Do the Greens eventually want to become a, a party of government? I suppose to do that, you've got to have a much broader appeal. Or is it better for the Greens not to be a major party, to stay small and not have to compromise? We want to grow and uh, we think our platform is one that people like and we are growing and, um, you know, everyone's taking polls with a grain of salt, especially after last election, but we're gaining support in the state parliaments, we're on the rise in the polls 
And part of the reason for that is because we're putting forward a plan that I think actually would appeal to a broad section of Australia, right? Right, but and, I mean, the, the Greens have been around for 30 years and, and the vote hasn't significantly changed at a national level in, in that time, certainly not to the level where you're in contention to be a government. And that's that's our challenge, right? That, that's You're right, that's our challenge. And our view and what I've learned, I guess, from being in Melbourne, where our vote has sort of doubled more or less over the years, is that the challenge is not our platform, the challenge is people hearing our platform. And I think that's, that's part of my job, right? And it's, and it's one of our, the things that we've got to overcome now is getting our view in front of people because people know, oh, the Greens will fight for climate. If you want to, someone to fight for you on climate, you vote for the Greens. What they don't know necessarily is um, that we'll also want dental into Medicare, that we're pushing for affordable housing. Like those are things that when we tell people that that's also part of our platform and that just as hard as we'll fight for climate, we're also going to fight for a better life for for all of us. People like it, and that's been the lesson in Melbourne. And I guess part of my job, my responsibility, I guess, as leader, uh, is to try and replicate that across the country. But I mean, isn't isn't part of that growth? You know, at some point when you're talking to a broader segment of the Australian population about your platform, you know, for every kind of thing in that platform that they might like, there's going to be a hard choice there as well. And governments have to be realistic with the people about costs and benefits of policies. Do you, do you sort of worry about, you know, we see um, scare campaigns on, on difficult policies be very effective all the time. Do, do you really think that you can succeed in winning over a majority of the Australian population? Ultimately, yes, because I mean, like, just look at this election, right? This election just become this narrow contest between a terrible government and a visionless opposition. And when we go to people and say, we've got a vision, we've got an alternative, We've had it costed by the parliamentary budget office. We can tell you, you know, how much money comes from closing the tax loopholes for the top end of town and how we would put that into affordable housing and here's how much our housing policy costs. People like it. People are responding really, really well to what we're putting out there. And in terms of those difficult choices that are made to fund these programs, at the moment, the choices that need to be made are about whether to keep giving tax breaks to people who've got three, four or five houses to go and buy their sixth, seventh or eighth? Like, do we keep giving Clive Palmer a tax cut? Do we keep helping the likes of Clive Palmer buy, put cheap diesel fuel in their trucks, which, you know, those fossil fuel subsidies cost $10 billion a year that you're paying for. Like anyone who pays taxes is paying for. We're just saying, let's stop doing that. Let's stop putting money to A, to people who don't need it and B, into industries that are cooking the planet and instead redirect it into things like affordable housing and dental care. Um, that's only a tough choice if you're a billionaire or a multinational corporation that wants to get away with paying no tax. For most people, it is not a tough choice. Um, and when we explain that our platform means you're not paying more, the, these billionaires and big corporations are paying their fair share so that your life can be better, people like it. And Ben, thank you very much for talking Thanks so to much us. for having us.